Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. We're very broadcasting about 60 countries around the world, and we're very proud of our number one status. We're coming to you as per normal from our hometown of Los Angeles. We do do about 10 shows a year from all over the world. Um, I think show after next is coming to you from Alaska. Um, I read a great article by Janine Darling, who's the founder of Stash, which is involved with data-centric privacy and security. And she says that um, when people you are speaking to process that you've actually chosen to build a business from scratch instead of sticking to the tried and true method of going out and getting a job with a company that, um, you know, pays you a regular wage and whatever, the, the look's one of sort of excitement. They're astonished that you're actually going to try and do it yourself. Um, they admire you for doing that because really deep down most people would like to have their own business. But then it sort of sinks in that mm, it's bloody hard. You are crazy. You're naive or, you know, you're on a suicide mission. This is then followed up with either, wow, <laughs> good luck or, wow, good luck with that. So these people begin to dream about a successful end game and exit. You know, entrepreneurs think about the accolades, the huge piles of cash, the Lamborghini in the driveway, the recognition, freedom, security, hanging out with Elon Musk and Richard Branson. Wow, when I get to be rich and famous, it's going to be fantastic. Well, that's sort of horse before the cart thinking. The reality is that a startup equals risk. Pure and simple, no other four-letter word applies except risk. When you start up a business, there are a whole bunch of ways to go broke and very few paths to success. In reality, with 97% of companies, new companies failing, you're better off going to a crap table in Vegas with absolutely no idea how to play slapping down a million bucks, and you could actually be much better off, and you wouldn't have to put in all the work. Then again, you could lose it too, but 97% of people lose it anyway. So, you know, people fall in love with their ideas. They tell themselves, you know, yeah, I know it's going to be hard. Everybody tells me that, but how hard can it be? You know, if I don't try, I'm not going to live happily ever after. But starting a company is an unconscious death wish for 97% of people. There's just so much that you really have to be good at. You have to find the right partners that bring great value and also bring loyalty and energy and a determination that matches your own. You've also got to have a real market for your product, not just short term, not something that's going to be an instant fad, but something that actually might survive. Most important, you've got to have patience, persistence, endurance, tenacity, and you've got to be able to sustain this for far longer than you ever imagined. You've got to be an expert at management, operations, supply chain distribution, human resources, technology, forecasting, marketing, branding, customer experience, customer service, and on and on. And usually if you're a startup, there's only maybe one, two or three of you. So the grim reality is that 97% of startups fail. Many of them fail after years and years and years of reward, of, of effort, sacrifice, no reward, and it's all gone for naught. 
a lot of startups are taken out of the hands of their founders, not because they're great, not great leaders, but often because VCs and investors want to take control. So many entrepreneurs sign their death warrants without even realising it. And they walk away with very little to show for probably the biggest effort they've ever made in their lives. But for the 3% where everything does go right, it is incredible. So before you go out and start up a business, have a good think about what you're doing. But you know, which is the innovation hub for Barcelona's entrepreneurs and technology communities, has released a document called 10 Slides for a Perfect Startup Pitch Deck. Communicating your message with clarity when seeking funding is absolutely everything. Now, given that you've got a very limited time to present and captivate investors, the need to present with passion, with simplicity and with power is absolutely paramount. Bacino suggests that you organise your pitch deck in the following order. The first slide needs to be your elevator pitch. That's the really short summary of a project within about 30 seconds that makes it sound fantastic and gives the potential investor all the information they need to say, wow, tell me more, I might have to have a piece of this. And you've only got a 30 seconds. And experienced investors will sort out good ideas from bad within that 30 seconds. So if your 30 seconds isn't simple and powerful and captivating, ding, you lose. The second slide is explaining the problems that you're seeking to solve. Too many startups create products not around solving any real problems, but focused on what they see as a market, but it's a temporary market. The problem has got to be your most important asset. So it's absolutely imperative to make the investor feel those pain points. What is, why is this an important problem to solve? How does it affect the end user? So if you can storytell it from a personal angle, then more often than not, if it's a problem you're experiencing or have experienced and you're passionate about it, the chances are that the potential investor, the message will ring true. You've got to keep it punchy, keep it visual, and keep, keep in mind the uh, end user. Now, try and engage the investors. Ask them how, whether they've had this problem before. How did they feel about it? Don't, don't, don't bombard them with information. Just make them realise how terrible this problem is and how it would be wonderful when you solve it. Slide three is to offer the solution. This shows how your product's going to improve the world by fixing the problem. Many entrepreneurs at this point start to get too technical, start giving way too much detail without showing how the product solves the problem simply. So keep it visual and very much to the point. If you're going to give a demonstration, make sure that it works 100% of the time. You'll be surprised how frequently a demo blows up in the entrepreneur's face. And I've had experience with this. I had a great product brought to me a few years ago, and we tried it about 50 times, and it worked perfectly. We took it to a demonstration. We were in um, Century City in, in Los Angeles in a boardroom of a big investment company. We set it up, and it exploded, and it um, sprayed stuff all over the whole room and broke things, and needless to say, we didn't give the money. So you want to make sure that your demo works. It was embarrassing, i got to tell you. On slide four, you need to demonstrate the size of the market for your product, and you need valid research um, 
and you've got to stipulate your sources. Don't get carried away with numbers. Don't say it's eight billion people. Every person on the planet can use this because the reality is that every person on the planet can't and won't. So you need to show that the market is substantial. And, of course, that's interesting for investors. On slide five, you need to explain the business model. How are you going to make money? Is it a one-time payment? Does it have recurring revenues? Is it fixed pricing? Is it dynamic pricing? Now, this is one of the most important points for investors. Don't show them 50 different revenue streams. Focus on the one most profitable one. You can introduce all the other stuff later, but keep it simple. On slide six, address the competition. You are probably not the only person in this space. So you need to show that you understand the competitors. Now, they might not be going about it the same way you are, but they may well be in the same space. Never knock the competition. Investors don't want to hear you criticise others, as the reality is that competition is going to help you grow your market. But they do want to know that your product will claim the lion's share. The most effective way is a simple comparison chart where you compare your product's characteristics with that of the competition. Leave the assumptions to the investors. On slide seven, you need to outline your go-to-market strategy and your marketing plan. What is your model for growth? Is it sticky, viral, or is it paid? If it's paid, how much does it cost for you to get a new user or buyer? If it's sticky, what is your churn or retention rate? And how does it evolve over a period of time? If it's viral, what are your KPIs and your viral coefficient? What marketing channels will you use? You need to be fairly specific in this area because they want to know that you've really got a handle on what you're doing. Now, many startups fail because they have a very poor acquisition model. So you need to know your market strategy inside out when meeting with investors. You know, I give presentations and it's amazing. I ask people if they know what their um, customer acquisition cost is. 99 people out of every 100 do not have a bloody clue. And if you don't know what your acquisition cost is, how do you know what your selling price is going to be? I meet idiots all the time that say, well, I bought it for a dollar. I'm selling it for a dollar twenty. Therefore, I made 20 cents. You know, when you sit down and analyze that sort of logic, you probably find they're losing half a buck. You know, so unless you've got your handle on all of that stuff, you will lose. Slide number eight. It's all about the team. An idea is worth absolutely zip without its execution. Every person walking down the street's got an idea. Every one of them. They can't do it. And without a team, neither can you. The key to securing investors is the value of experienced entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs that have got successful exits under their belt. Successful people with relevant experience and skill sets to the project you're working on. If you don't have much expertise in the sector, then recruit, recruit, recruit people who do. Put them on the board, staff, or put them on an advisory board, but make sure you're surrounded by people who do have that experience. Slide number nine is your projections. What have you achieved so far? Are you generating revenue? What's the user growth? Have you got any great clients or partnerships that you can talk about? Do you have relevant KPIs? Now, if you have absolutely no traction to base any future projections on, then base it on industry standards and well-researched and intelligent hypothesis. Because if you don't, they'll see through you in a heartbeat. And your 10th slide will set out your requirements. What do you need to be able to realise your project's potential? What do you need that you don't currently have and why? Defining exactly what you are looking for 
and explaining in detail how the funds will be utilised is critical. Be precise. Don't be ambiguous because you're seeking their capital and they want you to be able to justify what you're going to do with it and you need to be clear about what you're prepared to give up for that money. So once you've prepared this compelling investment deck, go for it. And remember, the pitch is absolutely everything. If you're not yet a member of the American Institute for Sales Marketing Management, which is the premier organization for business in the US, and you're serious about improving your skill set, your status and your network, then you really should join today. Apart from being able to put the initials AASMM after your name and receiving a great plaque for your foyer, there's an absolute wealth of information. There's complete business audits, webinars, advisory board like no other on the planet. So you should join. If you really care about being successful in business, you should join AISMM. So get on the web. Go to AISMM.us and join now. Now, Robert White is an entrepreneur's investment banker. He's also a really good guy, I've got to tell you. So having been an investment banker for some 24 years before starting his own company, which was funded by EB5, the Immigrant Investor Program. Now, what I didn't know is there are 10,000 EB5 immigrant visas available each year to immigrants that make a capital of investment or either 500 grand or a million bucks in a commercial enterprise located in the United States. Robert founded Good Time Beverages to bring the best pre-made cocktails to go to the world in his patented flex pouch funded by a direct EB5 investment. Now, Robert's been around the block a long time. He's been very successful. He was one of the founding partners of Home Shopping Network and led the company as its CEO through its IPO in Toronto and then the US company on the American Stock Exchange. He's also a member of Metal, which is a fantastic, um, almost a think tank organisation for people in the media, entertainment and technology industries. It's headed up by Ken Rakowski, who's just a genius. So have a listen to the interview. It's right after this short break. And I'm Bob Pritchard on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where over the last four years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 250 of the world's most interesting business people telling you what they do and trying to find out what makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and we need all the help that we can get. And that's why it's so important for all of us to listen to interviews like the one that's about to follow and to have mentors, 
surround yourself with mentors that have been there and done it before. It's um, being successful in business is very difficult, and uh, it helps a lot to have the wise counsel of people who have been there. Everybody in business faces the same challenges that everybody thinks that their product's going to have people beating a path to the door, but it doesn't work like that. And most entrepreneurs are experts at what they do, but the majority of businesses fail because they have no knowledge of all the other aspects that go into making a successful business venture. And too often people think that, wow, my product's fantastic. Uh, Investment's just going to flood in. People won't be able to resist it. Well, the reality is that um, investors these days have a multitude of things that they can invest in, and uh, it's it's a very difficult process. Now, Robert White is uh, the, an entrepreneur's investment banker, having been an investment banker for 24-odd years before starting his own company, and it was funded by what is called EB5. Now, EB5, I know a bit about this actually, being a Immigrant myself, <laughs> um, EB5 is the Immigrant Investment Investor Program created by Congress to stimulate the US economy through job creation and capital investment by immigrant investors by creating a new commercial enterprise or investing in troubled businesses. There are 10,000 EB5 immigrant visas available each year. And uh, it, it basically requires that the um, immigrant make a capital investment of $500,000 or a million dollars, depending on a number of um, criteria, in a new commercial enterprise located within the United States. Now, Robert founded Good Time Beverages to bring the best pre-made cocktails to go to the world in his patented Fletch Pouch. His portal, eb5usadirect.com, was founded from the financing of Good Time Beverages as a direct EB5 investment. From there, Robert joined Aaron Capital as Managing Director to advise on EB5 direct and regional centre projects. He was one of the founding partners of Home Shopping Network. Now, that's been a small success. And in 1986, led the company as its CEO through its initial public offering on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the US company on the American Stock Exchange. So he knows his stuff. Robert really understands the EB5 program. He went through the immigration process himself. He's actually a Canadian coming here over 25 years ago. And he's a partner in one of the only successful approved direct EB5 projects in America. Robert, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, Bob, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, raising funds for a business is um, got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world. You know, you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's an area where most of us have fallen down, and a huge number of entrepreneurs collapse because they haven't raised any money or enough money. Um, now, I've been out and tried to raise money on a lot of a lot of occasions, and I'm not very great at it. I just find it a difficult thing to do. So um, what have you got that we don't have? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, people come up with great business ideas, and they have fantastic concepts, uh, and they're probably very good at what they do. But when it comes to raising money, it's an art and a science. Right. And um, it's very complicated, uh, and you have to know your way around the maze. Um, you know, there's different types of investments or investors, everything from friends and family down to your uh, angel investors, and then from there to uh, private equity guys, your venture guys. And, you know, they're all different, and they all are looking for different things, and you have to talk their language, otherwise they dismiss you. You know, I, I'll never forget my friend Tim Draper, who has a big venture a capital fund. Good friend of mine, too, actually. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy, and he says, you know, we get 12,000 business plans a year. 12,000. Yeah. So how do you separate yourself from the pack when there's, you know, 12,000 business plans putting into an office? You've got to find a way to be personable, and you have to speak their language. Otherwise, you'll never raise the capital. 
Yeah, well, t- Tim uh, Tim told me that um, unless he can look in the whites of your eyes and feel your passion and believe that you're going to run through brick walls every time you strike a, uh, a hurdle, he's not right. interested in touching you no matter how good the idea is. Yeah, that's true, and a lot of good ideas uh, die because they don't get capital. But, you know, I have always found, and I say this to every entrepreneur that I work with, and that is the best thing you can do to help in your capital raise is to run your business and right. to stay focused on your business and increase revenues or go out and get sales or get some purchase orders or find a way to get people that are interested to acquire the service and let the investment bankers or let the people you're working with that are out there raising capital actually do their job. And the best thing you can do to help them is to increase your revenues. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of people say, look, it's just a numbers game. If you if you knock on ten doors, you're going to get ten knockbacks. If you knock on two hundred doors, you're going to get somebody who sits, stands up and says, "Okay, I'll invest." Now, I haven't found that to be the case. I found it's you know you've got to be a lot more strategic than that, or you never get any money. Yeah, I think that's true. You, you know, the best thing to do is find people that understand and like your product. I right. mean, if you are uh, in the uh, looking for venture capital money, for example, you want to go to venture capital funds that have some similarity in investing in companies like yours, yeah. and then they have an interest, an immediate interest. But if you're, if you're, for example, in our case, if you're doing consumer products and you go to somebody who just wants to do tech and software, forget about it. They're not going to talk to you. Right. Um, so you own a company called Good Time Beverages, which is been hugely successful and uh, I understand that you funded that from scratch but also used the EB5 program is that right yeah that's exactly correct so I was an investment banker and uh, my partner who's also my wife uh, that's she handy. Was, uh, yeah she was, unless uh, you get divorced then it's not so handy <laughs> well I, uh, we'll talk about that later we, we, we solved that problem in advance <laughs> um, but uh, we decided to open Good Time Beverages and leave our professional careers and start something from scratch. And when I say from scratch, I mean we knew four-fifths of five-eighths of zero about the spirits business. Right. Uh, we had never built a factory before. And uh, we were going into a business that had high barriers to entry uh, because of the distribution system in the United States. Sure. Um, and we plunked in a couple of million dollars of our own money, and then we went out to find additional financing. And literally, I was sitting in a meeting uh, with a a very wealthy individual from overseas who I'd known for a number of years, and uh, I was asking him for money. And uh, he said to me, you know, I can't do it. Uh, We just had some bad deals, but what about EB-5? And I looked across the table at him, kind of like a puppy dog with my head tilted, and said, you know, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah. He said, well, don't you know about the EB-5 program? And I said, you know, I've been a banker for some 20 years. I've never heard about EB-5. I don't know what you're talking about. So I went back to the office, spent the next week uh, with Mr. Google uh, learning about EB-5. And at the end of the day, I built an EB-5 program to get some funding for Good Time Beverages. And right. lo and behold, four and a half months later, we had an investor who has now successfully been approved and has green cards, et cetera. And uh, he invested a million dollars in a startup. Great. And I I hope you looked after your friend who um, didn't have the wherewithal to help you previously. You know, I took him for dinner. I, at, least a, <laughs> at least a case of booze a month would be good. Oh, yeah, Jeez. for sure. What an, un, what an un, what an ungrateful bastard you are. Jeez. <laughs> so how can EB5 assist entrepreneurs? Now, at what stage of your development do you need to be? <clears throat> You're an entrepreneur. What stage of your development do you need to be before you can um, solicit EB5 program? Well, I, there's, there's two, first of all, there's two different types of EB-5. There's what we call direct EB-5, and then there's the regional center program. And uh, I'll deal a little bit with both. In the direct EB-5 program, um, 
the investor is investing directly into the business. Now, that business could be a franchise like a Carl's Jr. It could be a, a submarine shop. It could be, uh, I'm sorry, a subway shop. Yep. It could be um, uh, or a business like ours, a manufacturing business. Right. Or it could be a development business. And the stage of the business is really irrelevant. Now, I think that you have a better shot of getting an EB-5 fund uh, from an investor that can see that the business is actually live and it has some revenues and that you're already moving down the road and it's not just a business plan, just right. like anything else. Yep. You have to remember, it's a very competitive EB-5 market. Last year, $4.7 billion was invested through the EB-5 program, wow. of which 95% of that went into real estate projects. Yep. You know, uh, most people don't realize that some of the new hotels that are getting built uh, in the major cities are, are EB-5 funded. Wow. So the, the stage of the project is somewhat, uh, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's important for the investor to know the important criteria, which is can you generate the 10 jobs per investment that is required to get the green card and to keep it? And once you've established that, or once the business has established that, they've gone out and hired 10 people in the local area, right. then the investor can get his conditional green card turned into a permanent green card. And that's so, the goal of the program. How long do you have to get the 10 employees from scratch? Um, that's a good question, and the best way to describe it is, if we look at the timetable, you go and find an investor, okay, so let's say you've got the investor, and he invests in the business, and you yep. get the money. Yep. So from that point, the investor files with the government something that's called a 526, and about 18 months later, he gets an invitation to go to the consulate in the country for which he's made the application, yep. and he gets a temporary green card. So it's been about 18 to 20 months. Okay. At that point, the clock starts for a 24-month period for you to hire the 10 employees. So if you okay. kept track, it's about three years that you have to hire the employees and keep them um, on your staff. Okay. So I'm, I'm from England or France or Saudi Arabia or somewhere, and I, I uh, decide that I'm going to put a million dollars into a company. Um, Am I domiciled here in the States during that period or have I got to keep an eye on my investment from 10,000 miles away? Well, actually, the rules are, the rules are very specific on this. Um, the person who makes the EB-5 investment, while that, ap while that application is being processed by the USCIS, which is, to, to us old guys, known as the INS, right. um, they you're not allowed to be in the United States of America. In okay. fact, you're not even allowed to visit. So yes, you have to look at your investment from overseas. Now, it's interesting that you say France or England or whatever, because um, well, the program is open to every country from around the world. And when I say every country, I mean Iran, Syria. I mean, it's open to any country from around the world. 82% okay. um, come from China. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Doesn't surprise me. I must admit, it's a, it's a high percentage. Um, yeah, it's eighty-two percent of them come from China, and uh, they is a, the only country uh, that has a cap on the number of applicants is China, and it's capped at seven thousand. So, of the ten thousand available visas, seven thousand can go to Chinese families. Wow. So does the does the money have to be put in all in one shot? Does it go into some sort of a um, an escrow, or how how does that work? Well, there's various ways to do it. Um, on the direct investments, most of the time, uh, the money goes directly to the company, and there has to be a wire certification that shows that either one million or five hundred thousand dollars went directly to the company. And I'll talk about the two differences in the amounts in a second. Okay. Both of the investments have to generate 10 jobs, whether it's a million or 500,000. Okay. Um, when the investor invests in the regional center program, those are usually large real estate projects of 50 or $100 million to develop a 
new hotel project or an assisted living facility or a hospital or a multi-use uh, center that could have condominiums, offices, and retail in it. Um, that, that money goes into escrow, and it goes into escrow until certain parameters are hit by the project that will allow for some of the funds to be released. And uh, usually that's a building permit or an approval of some sort or some type of Some type um, of yeah. Yeah, some type of stage in the construction. Now, right. let me talk about the difference between the 500 and the million because Sorry, can I it's just critical. Add- can I just ask yeah. one quick question? If it's a hundred, sure. if it's a hundred million dollar project, does that all need to come from one investor, or can that come from a hundred different investors? Yeah. Well, usually, let's say it's a hundred million dollar project, and fifty percent of that would be a construction loan, yeah. and then let's say twenty million would be uh, equity from the founders, yes. and the balance would be EB five, about thirty million. That means you'd have thirty million dollars worth of. $500,000 increment investors. Okay. okay. So it's a bunch of investors. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. Right. So um, on the 500000 or the million, there's something called targeted employment areas. In the EB-5 world, we call those T areas. Right. And targeted employment areas are designated where the unemployment rate is 150% of the national average. So, for example, you'd be surprised to hear that there are actually targeted employment areas in Beverly Hills, and there's targeted employment areas all over Los Angeles. And so it is easier to find um, a targeted employment area, and of course the investors, because the benefits are the same to the investor, whether they invest 500,000 or they invest 1 million. So you, it, it behooves the company to make sure that they are either in a targeted employment area or have direct adjacent access to a uh, targeted employment area. Okay. So do, then do, we get the $500,000 investment. Do you, the fact that you're, you're being pointed to these um, particular targeted areas, is that, does that mean that you... Um, do you have to employ within that area? I mean, what if you need some technical people and because it would seem to me that the people that are being targeted are um, probably the less qualified amongst us. Well, it's interesting because you can have people anywhere. For example, for our company, Good Time Beverages, we have sales and marketing people that work for us in Texas, Florida, up in Chicago, and they're part of our EB-5 program. Right. Okay. So it doesn't really matter where the people are. What matters, interestingly enough, is where the business is. You know, one of the things we have to remember about this EB-5 program is that it was designed by the immigration people. And so, uh, with all due respect to my friends in the immigration departments, they're not business people. (laughs) So they didn't think through a lot of the business issues, but they thought through the immigration issues. And so, you know, things like, uh, I'll give you another example. Like, do you have to keep the 10 employees? Well, there's two schools of thought about that. Of course, the first and the right thing to do is, yes, of course, you want to keep all the employees forever and ever, amen. But there's nothing in the act, the EB-5 act, that says that you have to keep them. All it says is that you have to hire them. So there's little things like that that we're hoping the government will work on over the next year to improve the EB-5 program. Yeah, well, you need some flexibility because, um, you know, I've I've had points in my life where I've only employed sort of 35 people, but out of that 35 people, you always find a few that just don't fit the culture or are lazy or find some other reason not to um, <laughs> not to help build your business. Yeah, and I guess there's all kinds of things can happen. I mean, one, sure. you could have an economic problem with the business and you have to release people. Uh, and I think the government wants to be sure that your obligation has been completed. Your obligation was to hire them. Or, for example, you could hire someone and, you know, a woman can get pregnant, and then all sure. of a sudden she decides she wants to leave the business. So what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you have to keep these people employed for a period of time? Is there a time limit nope. on them? So you can hire no them. time limit. You can hire them today and get rid of them tomorrow. Yeah, like, that's, of course, not the uh, you know intent of the uh, sure. uh, legislation. Yeah. Uh, but have people done that? Mm, not yet, but that doesn't mean they haven't thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got the, you've got the um, P 
period between um, being approved and uh, the two years later, haven't you? So you've really got two years to grow it and you've got to hold people in that period, I suppose. Yeah, and you know the benefit to America and the benefits to the business are outstanding. I mean, think sure. about this for a second. You know, the investors that are coming over that are investing $500,000 are educated, they are business people, they uh, are upstanding members of their own society, wherever they come from, sure. and they're coming over to America, they're buying homes in the multi-million dollars worth, they're buying cars, they're putting their kids into private school. These are the best type of, you know, if you could, can say this, I don't know if it's, if it's politically correct, but it's the best type of immigrants sure. that we can have coming into America. And then yeah. what are they doing? They're supporting American businesses, whether it's building of real estate or it's um, the development of a new beverage business or it's uh, some software program. It, gives, it doesn't matter. The USCIS doesn't pass muster on whether you have a good business or a bad business. If your business plan is to sell ice cream cones in Alaska in wintertime, yeah. as long as you hire the 10 people, they're satisfied. Right. So on, how do you go about this? I, I'm, um, I've got a startup business or more or less a startup business. We're just starting to get a bit of traction in the marketplace. What do I do? How do I go? Obviously, I call you. But what's the process for an entrepreneur? Yeah, so there's, again, two ways to do it. Uh, the first process is if you're a direct investment, you're going to want to reach out to every possible immigration attorney that you can contact. And there's 3,000 of them in America. Uh, and indicate that you are looking for an EB-5 investor and you are uh, willing to give up a piece of your business because it has to be equity, it can't be sure. bad, sure. and uh, start working with them. And, you know, the immigration attorneys, they are ethically not permitted to suggest one deal over another, and they are ethically not permitted to get involved in a type of commission scheme or payment scheme for making an introduction. They're supposed to make their money from the actual immigration work that they do on behalf of the investor. But many of these immigration attorneys do know. They do we, know where to where to find these guys. We are talking about attorneys here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> correct. <laughs> um, okay, so you're um, and then you reach out. The other way to do it is that you could find agents. There are agents, particularly in China. There's about 300 agencies that uh, do that, and they present your deal. But I should warn everybody in advance that if you have a small deal and you're only trying to raise a million or two million dollars, the agents in China probably will not take on your project because they're selling $50 million projects and it's a lot easier for them to sell that than it is to sell a small startup company or near startup company or growth company in America. Sure, sure. I can, I can understand that. Makes sense. Um, so the process from, so I, I, I I go to an agent in China or an immigration attorney here and they find somebody, they come to me and they say, we've got someone. You, who then puts in the application to um, whoever the regulatory body is, to the INS, I yeah. suppose? Yeah, that's right. And so what, what the company provides is they provide a signature on that 526 form, which is the immigration application form right. for EB-5. And they attach their business plan, and they attach something which is really important, two articles. The first is their forward-looking projections for the next five years, yeah. not historicals, but forward-looking projections. Sure. And the other thing they do is they provide an employment rollout chart. So they actually show the government when approximately they're going to be hiring these 10 employees for the investment. Now, for example, if it's a $2 million investment, you're going to have to hire 40 people. Right, right. Because right. you know, it's divided in quarters, right? Yep. So, you know, you really have to be able to demonstrate that you can hire the people and that you can put them to work. Does that, does that prevent money going into a lot of tech companies that tend not to need um, so many employees? I mean, yeah, I think that's true. You know, the, the companies like, for example, I get a lot of calls from people who say, oh, we're doing a film production company. Yep. Well, film production companies are probably the worst for EB-5 yeah. because most of the people that work on films are, um, you know, part-time. 
And yep. so they don't become full-time employees. But and if it you doesn't have last long that, either. It doesn't last long, exactly. But for example, one of my clients is Carl's Jr., uh, Hardee's in the East, and right. you know they have restaurants. Yes. And so they hire a lot of people. And uh, when you have that type of a project where it's, again, manufacturing, restaurant, food service, uh, hotels, those types of businesses um, can attract a lot of employment. Now, also, the government, if you're doing a real estate project, will give you credit for employees of the construction crew. So, for example, if you're building a project over a two-year period and you're hiring a thousand people, you're right. going to get at least 500, possibly 600 people credit for hiring those people to build that project. Okay. So, these people have to be full-time, obviously. Yes, they do. They have to be full-time employees. Okay. Um, so, what? What? how long have you been doing this now? Since... Um well, it's been six years that we've been doing it, and what happened was uh, we funded it with uh, our own EB-5 investor, yep. and then uh, because I had been an investment banker for years, I started getting a lot of calls from people saying, how'd you do that? And uh, so I wrote a little book on it, and I built a website that is kind of a dating site, uh, the one you referenced, which is eb5usadirect.com, yep. and it's a dating site or you know, eHarmony or Match.com for businesses looking for for investors. Right. Um, then I wrote the book on how to do it for direct DB5. And, um, you know, the rest uh, kind of it kind of led, one thing led to the next. I got a call from some friends of mine that had an investment bank that said they wanted to get into the EB-5 business. And so I'm kind of back into the EB-5 slash investment banking world and uh, left the beverage business for my wife to run. <laughs> I thought of something funny, but I'm not going to say it. So what, what's, what's been your success rate over the, since you began um, really focusing on this? Well, it's been pretty good. You know, we have gotten uh, through the website a bunch of offers uh, from investors. Uh, we continue to market the site overseas, predominantly in Asian countries. Sure. Um, I do a lot of traveling over there. I just got back from China, then I was in Hong Kong and Korea, where we talk about the uh, direct opportunities. And um, I also am starting to do a lot of uh, regional center projects where we do Securities and Exchange Commission compliance work for these large capital raises because right. we are selling securities. And uh, the investors, even though they're overseas, as soon as they buy a U.S. security, uh, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission is interested in what's going on. Yeah, sure. So um, is it easier for you to get investors or to get projects, worthwhile projects? Well, the good news is is that the investors are very well covered by the agents and by the immigration attorneys. Right. So they probably have more projects to choose from than going to pick a flavor of ice cream at Baskin Robbins. Right. Um, the where I'm best served or where I, I service people the best is working with companies and or working with regional centers to help them uh, put together their plans and move forward to try and find some EB-5 investors. It, it, it is easy. I want to underline it's super easy, but it does take time and you have to have patience. And, you know, I say this, and I've been saying this for the last 20 years as an investment banker, when we go out to raise capital for people, it does not happen overnight. It just True. takes time. <laughs> it is. I, I hate it, too. There's nothing worse than knocking on doors and going down rabbit holes. And, you know, it is the hardest job. Raising capital has got to be the hardest job in the world. And one of the problems I think that... Um, entrepreneurs have is that you've got to raise capital on a continuous basis you know almost it's not about going out and getting some capital and then um sitting back sitting back and running your business you've almost got to be on a continual sales drive for for capital and uh, it makes it hard to do all the other hundred tasks that a, a successful entrepreneur has to do well, I, I agree. It's Steve Forbes says that a successful company CEO will raise capital for the first 17 years of the company's existence. 
And I can tell you, even with good time beverages, even though we raised EB-5 money, we continue to raise more EB-5 money, and we continue to look for more growth capital because to stay ahead of the curve and to stay ahead of your competition and to market ahead of your competition and to introduce new products into the marketplace requires capital. And sure, you're making money when you're selling product, but it's never enough when you have a growing business. Yeah. Never enough. True, true. Robert, um, we've run out of time, unfortunately, um, but thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It, now it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure. Now, if you'd like to find out more about EB5, go to eb5usadirect.com. I'll do that again. eb5usadirect.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs in the world. Over the past few weeks, we've been speaking about um, why women don't make up a higher proportion of not only CEOs and board members in the tech industry, but also why there's a relatively small proportion of employees in general. And I think the reason why so few women are tech leaders are firstly the lack of females in STEM, which, you know, as you know, is the acronym for science, technology, engineering and math subjects. And secondly, the aggressively competitive nature of the um, tech industry. You know, some very aggressive industries attract certain personality types. There's also a long running trend of women not chasing STEM qualifications something that you know a number of companies and certainly governments have been trying to address. The risk profile is distinct between the way men and women view risk, especially with respect to a work-life balance. It propels women, to, women towards, a less, towards less risk, especially when large companies offer you less risky opportunities, a steady stream of income, a certainty about what the next month will look like, maternity leave, all of the rest of the things that big companies offer. And uh, so I guess this aversion to risk keeps women away from STEM subjects, and this is not likely to change anytime soon. So we can bitch about it all we like. We're probably not going to change it. Now, when you meet somebody new, how do you become instantly likable? You know, people make a judgment about you and your personality within four seconds of meeting you. So, And that assessment can influence whether they want to hire you or date you or be your best friend or whatever. So you want to do everything you can to make the best impression possible in that four seconds. So how do you do it? To get a few clues, I checked out How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less by author Nicholas Boothman. The book highlights a key strategy for ingratiating yourself with your conversation partner while greeting them. A fairly simple plans that you've probably heard before, but the best part, the whole process takes just four seconds. So let me give you five tips on how to become instantly likable. These are the four tips that five tips that I use to absolutely charm the pants off everybody I meet. Step one is to be open. To do this, you need to open your body and your attitude. In terms of your body language, just aim your heart directly at the person you're meeting. Don't cover your heart with your hands or your arms or even a jacket. If you're wearing a jacket, undo it. 
it's keep yourself open, keep your hands wide open, make yourself all in, enveloping to the person. It's equally important to cultivate a positive attitude. While you're greeting the person, you should feel and be aware of that positivity. So feel positive. Step two, make eye contact. Make sure that you're the one to initiate eye contact and let your eyes reflect your very positive attitude. If you feel uncomfortable making eye contact, try this strategy for getting used to it. When you're watching TV, note the eye color of the people on camera and say the name of your color, of the color in your head. The next day, do the same thing with the people that you meet. But be sure to look away from time to time as too much eye contact can really feel intimidating. Step three, produce a beaming smile. You should be the first one to smile. You'll send the message that you're really sincere. Research also suggests that smiling when you meet somebody in a happy context is a useful way to get them to remember you. Step four is to say hello. So whether you say hi or hey or hello or say something else, you should always sound delighted to be making this person's acquaintance. Next, extend your hand. Make sure to give a firm handshake, which generally creates a more positive impression. So when the person you're meeting gives his or her name, Try to repeat it a few times. For example, you might say, Sarah, well, it's very nice to meet you, Sarah. And that way you reinforce the name to yourself. Step five, lean in. There's no need to fall over, bump into the other person. Just try an almost imperceptible forward tilt to show that you're open and interested in what the person has to say. So if you try those five simple steps, people will automatically take a license to you. So that's really cool. Now, there's a huge change taking place in where media monies are being spent and where digital ad spending is going over the next five years. Dollars are increasingly flowing from traditional to digital as very strong growth in mobile, video and social spending continue to change the face of the US media market. Over the next five years, marketers will especially embrace mobile. Mobile will drive up spending on video, search, display and social and propel the migration of ad dollars away from traditional media, including newspapers and magazines. There's been a new report by BI Intelligence and uh, it forecasts spending trends for the major digital ad formats, including search, display, video, and also mobile versus desktop. They examine trajectories for social ad spending, which cuts across digital formats. Finally, they looked at how spending on traditional media formats will grow or contract over the next five years, they found that mobile will be the fastest growing advertising channel. US mobile ad revenue will increase by 27% compound annual growth rate through 2020. Digital video ad spending is rising faster than search and display. US digital video ad revenue will increase by a CAGR of 22% through 2020. These are good, solid increases, aren't they? Mobile search will overtake desktop search ad revenue by 2019, and mobile search ad revenue will re increase by 25% CAGR. And unlike digital, traditional ad revenue will remain flat through 2020. Traditional ad revenue will rise by a CAGR of just 0.4% between 2015 2020. Conclusion, the days of traditional media are over. So make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio show summary, which is sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. Simply subscribe by going to bobpritchard.com. And if you're not a member of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management and are serious about improving your skill level, go to aismmu.us and join now. That's A-I-S-M-M -M dot U-S. In the meanwhile, remember, 
if you're not really pushing the envelope and if you're not really living right on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the possible, impossible, I mean, than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.